The Epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest written chronicle in the world, composed two to three thousand years before Christ. It tells events in the life of a king in an ancient city of Mesopotamia. The text is revered, and the hero is an icon of Mesopotamia equal in tradition to the Jewish hero David as told in the Bible or the Greek hero Achilles, is told in the Iliad, both of which it precedes as literature and some aspects it anticipates. For untold centuries, even into the last millennium before Christ, the children of what is now Iraq learned to read and write by copying Gilgamesh, just as once Greek children learned to read and write by copying the Iliad. And just as before the 20th century, children in Europe and America had learned to read and write from the text of the Bible. References to Gilgamesh and daily speech were commonplace. To dig a well was to dig Gilgamesh's well. Certain rituals were referenced to his legend. Various walls or monumental buildings were referred to Gilgamesh's reign for almost... 2,000 years. The legends of Gilgamesh were probably told at the earliest moment of that civilization called Sumerian, about 3,500 BC or more than 5,500 years ago. Sumer was the first civilization, so-called, because historically here is the earliest known development of large city-states and written language. Defining civilization is a topic for a book. However, these two characteristics, the city-state system and a written language capable of narration, are practically agreed upon by all scholars. These developments poise the larger creation of imperial states that were to come. Well-ordered administration of communications and commerce necessary or an economic and political commonwealth that would encompass hundreds and thousands of square miles and hundreds of thousands of people with many ethnicities. In Egypt, China, and Mesoamerica, civilization would also independently develop. However, it is the Sumerian that is the immediate and profound progenitor of our own tradition. Elements of Sumer remain with us in astronomy, in our zodiac, in the manner that we tell time, the 12 hours of our clock, and in our calendar, the 12 months of the year. In some commonplace words such as sugar, and more subtly in the pattern of our lives and belief, we are and have been continuously, for example, a society of oligarchy, whose hierarchy and heritage is a military or economic dominance. We are a society of classes defined by economic means, occupations, and genealogy. We are a society of multicultural diversity that is tense with conflicted values in which a more or less majority population is able to dominate legal and cultural affairs. 
and our institutions of governance, religion, and commerce retain a recognizable continuity and similar function over a span of more than 5,000 years, beginning with Sumer. The river plains around and between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, hence the term Mesopotamia, or between rivers from the Greek, were populated from the coast of the Arabian Sea into which the rivers flowed, to the Zagros Mountains that border the plains to its east, and to far north and west beyond the sources of those rivers, where mountains separate these plains from the Mediterranean basin. The peoples of this broad land had diverse ethnicity, Sumerian, Semite, Indo-European, and other native and foreign groups in lesser numbers. A certain tension between these various societies developed, between the city dweller and the rural, between the farming populations and the nomadic herdsmen, between the people of the cultivated plains and the people of the, quote, open country, close quote. In its earliest development, this was a distinction between the Sumerian people and the Semites, who lived largely as nomadic herdsmen, like the Jews as they are described in the Bible. The vilification of cities and city life in the Bible exemplifies these cultural prejudices very well. The classic citation is Genesis chapter 18:19, where Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed for their wickedness. Quote, he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the city and that which grew upon the ground. Prophets of later times invoked this judgment, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, not only against heathen cities, but even against Jerusalem, where backsliding Jews had taken up the culture and especially the religious customs, that is, idolatry, of city life. Many Semitic peoples adapted to city life, taking to villages in the suburbs of the city, providing livestock to feed the city, and many were assimilated into the city. Within a thousand years, Semitic names outnumber Sumerian in the text. Gradually, the political and religious leadership shifted from Sumerian to the Semitic until finally, by 1800 B.C. or so, there were no more Sumerian rulers, and the language of Sumer was dead, unspoken, but kept for sacred text and royal communications, much like Latin was kept by Europeans long after the Roman Empire ceased to exist. The complete text of the Epic of Gilgamesh did not survive in Sumerian but only in the Semitic language of the Akkadian. This collection of clay tablets, 12 in all, comes from the last period of the Akkadian Empire, circa 700 BC. Buried in the rubble of Nineveh when the Persians destroyed that city in 612 BC and discarded the old religion that had held sway for so long and began a new cultural tradition. The legend of Gilgamesh now disappeared.
Certain motifs and specific lore that first appeared in the Epic of Gilgamesh did persist after it had completely disappeared by name. You will recognize the story of the Flood, which became a part of Hebrew lore, retold as the tale of Noah, but also retold in Greek mythology. You may also recognize other elements that remind you of other ancient myths, the descent to the underworld where the dead dwell, the struggle with monsters, the pursuit of immortality. Some scholars have noted specific parallels to Homer's Odyssey, the offense to gods for slaying the sacred cattle of the sun, the sojourn of the hero with a woman who guides him on his quest. But the name of Gilgamesh was forgotten when these other tales were told, forgotten with the language that had uttered it. And his name would have remained unspoken forever but for the archaeology that recovered it some 2,000 years later. After Nineveh was destroyed and sacked, it was never again occupied, a forbidden place. And over the ages it was scavenged and its ruins weathered, but local legend still preserved its identity. In 1839, a young British officer traveling between military assignments chanced upon that local legend. He was wealthy enough to engage labor at his own expense and so began an excavation. He found the site of the Royal Library and in its buried chambers tens of thousands of clay tablets in a strange, unknown language. For over a decade after the tablets had been rescued and shipped off to the British Museum, their words could not be successfully translated until a rock inscription was found that contained a key to its strange cuneiform characters, the so-called Record of Darius. Then, in 1872, after sorting through many thousands of tablets, most of which were mundane records of royal administration and an accounting, the Epic of Gilgamesh was recognized. With it, and most exciting at the time, was the discovery of an ancient tale of the biblical flood, predating the Bible itself. Just one year before, Darwin's theory of the descent of man had been published, scandalizing England. And so, for some, this discovery was now another heretical challenge to the presumptive history of mankind, as reckoned by the Bible. To others, however, the discovery affirmed the truth of the Bible. George Smith, an assistant of the British Museum, made the discovery. On reading the text, it is said, he, quote, jumped up, and rushed about the room in a great state of excitement, and, to the astonishment of those present, began to undress himself. Close quote. The Epic of Gilgamesh is called an epic in the tradition of the Greek Iliad or the medieval Beowulf only because of certain outward similarities. Like these, it is a chronicle of a cultural hero, like these, the events represent deeply meaningful, frequently recited subjects. 
Unlike these other epics, the Epic of Gilgamesh was not known to be recited to music as entertainment by bards. In its native text, it seems not composed as poetry at all. Still, it was written down, we are told, to be read aloud on some occasion, although probably not in association with any particular religious occasion. It was secular entertainment. Like epic poems, the heroic central figure is admired for his prowess and power. He is a heroic warrior whose greatest adventures are here recounted. Like these epics, this text is also characterized by its repeated formulaic epithets and catchlines, and an aesthetic for repetition generally, as if its passages were composed for memorization and recitation. Thus, it resembles the cadence, style, and structure that classically arise in the same sort of oral traditions that created the Greek and Old English epic poems. In short, the Epic of Gilgamesh shows all the characteristic features of a mythic lore that must have been told and retold over the ages as the sacred memory of a people. It resembles in this way all mythic lore, that also of Native Americans, of African tribes, and of aboriginals all over the world, possessing a style in storytelling that seems similar, having subject matters that are fantastic and ultimately magical, intentionally going beyond the normal bounds of the world. Gilgamesh, in this sense, belongs to the tradition of all mythical heroes, whose adventures take place in a reality that transcends us, or that in another sense is always present. It is the realm of eternity. It is the other world, where what is human is strange, what is human lacks normal power or significance. Literatures like this, motifs like this, predominate ancient and primitive literature, what is customarily called mythology. The dream-like quality, a sort of liquescence of thought, wherein reality and state of mind liquidly exchange, and what is real is symbolic, and what is symbolic becomes what is real. This state of magic is natural to these tales. It is the essence of their wisdom, for they are speaking from a mind that is entranced with what psychologists call the unconscious, those thoughts and experiences that are instinctive or elemental or profoundly personal. The mythic manner of thinking and speaking is not only unfashionable except when self-consciously fantastic, it is no longer believable. There are two schools of thought about the question of whether such tales were ever truly believed. One is that no one ever believed these myths. They were always recognized as metaphor or allegory. The other, in various forms, is that people did believe them but could not help themselves because they were primitive, or they were intellectually inferior, or their brains were different than ours. Of course, people still do believe in the literal truth of their sacred books. 
What makes the Epic of Gilgamesh less believable than, say, the Bible or the Quran or the Upanishads is only that no one is still alive who does believe it. The religions that we call false were once true, as Emerson said. The Epic of Gilgamesh is an accidental artifact of a lost civilization that was submerged, covered over by intervals of history, surviving half-buried in hardly recognizable ruins and only doubtfully recalled by ancient enemies and foreigners who knew them mostly by legend. Yet this was the first civilization, that which is the father and mother of our own civilization. It is like the great-great-great-grandparent whose name you do not know, but without whom you would not exist. In that sense, when we read the Epic of Gilgamesh, we are reading the recollections of our most ancient parents, their intimate moments, their fears and hopes and ambitions, when their body was vital, their mind keen, their heart speaking. The language may sometimes seem stiff and formalistic. Some behavior is couched in customs or actualities that are not understood and are not explained. There are matters that are not believable to us. Monsters, deities, and places we do not think exist nor ever existed. Yet, we can perceive in Gilgamesh a person like ourselves. We understand him even if we do not understand or believe all that he does. Gilgamesh is the first of literature that expresses the human experience. If not a human individual, it is central to the legend that we believe he really lived. This is not the tale of a god. This is the tale of a man. A brief word on this rendition. This is based upon literal translations of the original tablets. The translations are given word for word and line for line, corresponding to specific tablets and columns. Because the many scholarly translators have so diligently reproduced the authentic text, they reveal gaps, questionable words, and confusing expressions that are found in often very damaged tablets. These problems make these literal translations difficult and unrewarding for a casual reader or a student. This rendition, therefore, seeks to fill the gaps as faithfully as possible with likely text and to clarify expressions and confusions with terms that are based upon an understanding of the ancient culture. We shall begin with Tablet 1, which we have named the Prologue. 